Paul himself is way up in years. Paul himself has been through so much. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten with uh, 39 lashes five times. He's been stoned and, and drug out of town and left for dead. He's been in jail more times than he can count. And as he writes this letter to young Timothy, a letter of encouragement and instruction, Paul's in prison and probably realizes he may never again be free and that he will probably lose his life for his face. So you have this really uh, 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 sort of very different situation between Paul, who's lived a long life and a, a very fruitful ministry, but a very, very difficult life, and now is facing a martyrdom. And here's young Timothy in his first church, and he's struggling mightily because the church has lots of problems, and he feels like he's perhaps in over his head. We know he's struggling because he's discouraged and he wants to leave. And so a good reason for the letter is to encourage him to stay and instruct him on what to do when he stays. And this letter is full of that. It's full of encouraging things. It's full of optimistic things. It's full of incredibly pragmatic things about how to, how to behave as a Christian and how to behave as a church. It's a wonderful, wonderful gift to the church, First Timothy. So First Timothy chapter... Four, And, you know, in chapter 4, the first few verses we looked at last week, there were some people who were teaching some nutty things and, and adding things to the Scripture. We talked about legalism and how damning that is to us because legalism says the gospel alone, Jesus' atonement alone really isn't enough. You have to believe in Christ, but you also have to obey all these rules and do all these things. And the reason we want legalism is because we like to think we, we're, we're, we like to think much of ourselves, and legalism helps us think much of ourselves. We can say, look, I've kept all these rules. Like we said, it's, it's like the, the, the Pharisee who goes into the temple to pray. He looks over at the tax collector. He says, I thank you that I'm not like him. Here's how great I am. That's legalism. I don't do these things, I don't do these things, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't dance, I don't chew, and I don't go out with girls who do, or whatever it is. I mean, we just got all these lists of things that we don't do, and makes us feel more righteous, it makes us feel better. And then what we do is we lay those on other people and say, well, if you're really going to be a Christian, you have to do these things. And that just loses the whole point of the gospel. Remember, our obedience is because we love Jesus so much, we want to be like him. That's the source of obedience, not legalism. Why, why, do I, why do I stay away from sin? Why do I want to have a life that exhibits the glory of God? Not so people think much of me, so they think much of Jesus because I represent him and I love him. And he loves me and I know he loves me because he came and he lived a sinless life and he died a substitutionary death on my behalf. So he's talking about all of that, Paul is, and he says in verse 6, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. Father, help us with your word this morning to apply it to our lives individually and apply it to this church corporately. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So he says, all of this I'm teaching you about these things. If you point them out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good servant. This is how you do it. You simply teach these things that I'm telling you, and, and you will have accomplished something. You know, I, I, I posted on Twitter last night. I, I, I deal a lot with pastors every day. It's my job, and um, most of them I deal with are deeply discouraged. Uh, they wouldn't be calling me or contacting me. And, uh, you know, I know for a fact that, there's a lot of, of men who are 
preaching today who are very discouraged and despondent and even depressed. And, you know, I, I felt led last night by the Lord to tweet something out that I basically said, I know many of you getting ready to preach in the morning are battling discouragement and perhaps even depression, and uh, your church is not doing well, and there's all kinds of conflict and difficulties, not unlike what Paul was talking to Timothy about. But here's the reality for those of us who are in ministry. Here's the reality for all of us who are God's children by faith in Jesus Christ. Every act of our obedience has eternal significance. Let me repeat that. Every act of your obedience has eternal significance. God will use every act of your obedience to him and to his word for his glory eternally. And, and so when the, when whatever it is, that, you know, when, when, you, when you obediently follow his word, you obediently work at being the husband, the, the, the wife, the, the mother, the, the father, the church member, obediently doing the... You may feel like I'm not making any ground. I'm not getting any traction. If you're a pastor, you may feel like I'm preaching the same thing over and over and nobody's paying any attention. No lives are being transformed. But truthfully, if we are truly obedient and we follow him because we love him, he will take all of those things and in, throughout, throughout eternity, we will see that all of them have played a role in his plan. Paul says in another passage, don't grow weary in well-doing. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. Sometimes we grow weary in this well-doing. We think it's not making any difference. I'm not having any trouble. That's what Satan wants you to think so that you'll give up and you'll quit. But it does make a difference. He says, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Now listen, he didn't say if they follow you, <laughs> if they do what you say, he says, if you're obedient, then you will have accomplished what Christ has wanted you to do, and you'll be nourished by the words of faith and good teaching that you have followed. In verse 7, but have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. In other words, he's telling Timothy, you can get caught up in all kinds of, of, of arguments and pointless discussions that go nowhere, <laughs> Twitter, Facebook television. I mean, seriously, it can just drain all of your time, and there's no resolution to that. And Paul's saying, you have to choose, Timothy. You've got to choose those things you're going to focus on, and don't focus on things that just have no, no, no end to them. They're just stupid things people argue about all the time. I realize none of us have ever been in a church where people argued about things that make no difference for eternity. The color of the walls, the time of the worship service, the kind of music we sing. We can spend all of our time Baiting all, even, even some of the structure and the governance and how decisions are made. We can, we can really, we can just, and there's no real resolution to that because what we're talking about many times is what? It's our preferences. And our preferences don't really matter. All that matters is what Jesus wants to do with your life and what he wants to do with the church. And listen, church, if we would spend just, if we would just spend our time doing those things, that we know Jesus wants us to do, we wouldn't have time to argue and bicker over the things we're not sure about. He know, we know he wants us to love each other as Christ loved us so that the world will know we are his disciples. So maybe if we just spend our days working on loving one another, that might just be enough. We're also to love the world and care for the world, and seek for the world to be transformed by the gospel. So maybe if we would do that, 
But if we, if we don't, if we, if we turn in on ourselves and we, we argue and bicker over silly things that don't matter, this is about the third time Paul's mentioned this. So here in this church in Ephesus, they're prone to arguing over things that don't matter. And listen, part of the reason we argue, listen, part of the reason you argue with your spouse, part of the reason you argue with your parents, part of the reason you argue with people you work with, part of the reason you argue with people in your church is you want to be right. And the reason you want to be right is you don't feel important enough. And let me tell you something. (laughs) You're not going to find your worth in feeling important. You're not going to find your worth in what people think about you. Because you're never going to be secure in that. You're always going to want more. More affirmation. More sense that you're right. More sense that you're on top. This is where a Christian finds your worth. You find it in the cross. You find it that your worth has already been settled on Calvary's hill. Jesus determined you were worth his sacrifice. And he died for you so that you might have faith in him and you might be regenerate and you might have a new life and you are adopted by God and you are his child by adoption. You don't need anything else. Your worth is already, you don't have to prove you're better than anybody else. You don't have to prove you get the last word. You don't have to be on top all the time. Because Jesus has already proven his love for you and your worth in the kingdom. And if you think, if you're worried about what people think about you and you want people to think well of you, just just remember that Jesus said, If you're my child, I've already created a home for you in heaven. It's got your name on it. you got a place to go. you got a place at my table. You don't need any more validation in life than that. And and trust me, dear ones, if we got a church full of people who are completely validated in Jesus and, and they're not competing with one another all the time, that's a nice place to be. The world is where we compete constantly. And here Paul is making clear to Timothy, don't waste time on these silly myths and pointless arguments, but rather he says, for the training, and he talks, he compares, for the training of the body has limited benefits. In other words, taking care of your body and things like, has limited benefits. Why is it limited? Well, we're all going to die anyway. Didn't mean to get off on this because I am not the person to preach this text, all right? I get that. You're looking at me thinking, you probably ought to skip this verse. <laughs> I'm not being funny about that. It's just, it is a reality. But some of you in here freak out about your health, and you try to control it in every possible way you can, and you should. You should eat right. You should exercise. You certainly should sleep a lot. You should uh, take care of what you uh, uh, eat and, and drink and don't abuse it. Absolutely. Paul says it has limited benefits. But it's limited because you do not control your ultimate destiny. And we're all going to die. And this sort of false understanding that if I, just, if I can just control everything in my life, somehow or another I'm in control. No, you're really not. You're really not. It's appointed unto man one time to die and after death the judgment. Unless Jesus comes back while you and I are living, we're all, we're all going to die. So... Physical taking care of your body has some limited benefit, but it's very limited. It is very temporary. It is, this life is like a vapor. It's like a fog. It's very temporary. 
But comparing that, he says, but godliness is beneficial in every way. I mean, you think about how some of us freak out about every... Now, some of us don't freak out enough, but some of us freak out about every detail of our health, right? Every detail. I'm a little bit of a germaphobe, all right? I really am, among other things. And it's getting worse the older I get. And uh, when you travel a lot, that can be a real problem. When you stay in motels and hotels a lot, that can be a, a real issue. And so, like, I, I just, uh, you know, I don't ever touch banisters when I'm going in an airport or, you know, I just don't want to. And my wife will touch them. I'm like, don't touch that. Don't touch that banister. You know how many hands have been on that banister, right? The first thing I do when I go in a hotel room is clean it again myself. You know, I just I want to do that. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm... I understand that, and, and there's some benefits to that, especially with the flu and, and being cautious. I get all of that, but here's my point. Hopefully, you'll understand. You'll think this would be nice if you actually had a point since we're paying him to preach here. And here's my point. As upset as I get when I think, oh, my goodness, I've just put my hand on this handrail. How many people have touched that? What kind of weird disease am I going to get? Or I go to a hotel, even if it's a decent one. You know, I, I ask... I ask for a second set of sheets, and I take the sheets, and I put them over the chair or the couch because I do not want to sit on that chair and couch unless there's a sheet on it because my family thinks I'm nuts. Because <laughs> at home, in my house, I'm filthy, but it's my filth, so it don't matter. I don't care. <laughs> it's true. I don't care. It's fine. You know, I don't, I, Jill, Jill, you know, she'll go downstairs where I've, watch TV the night before, and there'll just be crumbs and food and everything all over the place. It looks like, she goes, what is this? I go, it's my filth. I'm comfortable with it. It's all right. I know what it is. But, but the way I will sometimes freak out about, did I touch that? And have I cleaned that? And I don't want to sit on this. And yet I can become so comfortable with impure thoughts and and pride and egotism and wanting people to make much of me and skipping uh, reading God's word on a regular basis. Those things sometimes don't bother me at all, but touching the handrail freaks me out. And Paul, that's what he's talking about. You know, touching the handrail has some limited benefit. You know, you may not get a cold or the flu, but guess what, Clifton? You're going to die anyway of something. But what you do with your heart and how you follow Jesus and those things, have you, they, that's for all eternity. Will you get your priorities straight? Will, will you be as upset over the fact that you're, you're, you're living out of sync with the Lord as you are, man, I touched a handrail and now I've got to go wash my hands five times? Does that make sense, I hope? Because that's what he's talking about here. For the training of the body or for taking care of your body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way because it holds, it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. So when I really pour myself into God's word, when I, when I understand my worth is found in the gospel, not in myself, when I, when I desire what he wants for me, it's not only for eternity that I get all the benefit, which I do, but it's right here and now. I'm more comfortable in who I am. I'm more pleasant to be around. I'm more joyful even in difficulty and, and strife. And so he's making this comparison, how we just focus on the temporary and ignore the eternal. Verse 9, Verse, uh, this is a trustworthy saying and deserves full acceptance. For this reason, we labor and strive, because we have put our present hope in the living God, 
who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. All right? Again, he's saying, this is a trustworthy saying and deserves full acceptance. For this reason, we labor and strife. Why do we work so hard at this? Why is Paul in prison? Timothy, why are you staying there and battling through this with all the adversity? I mean, why, why do we do these things? Because it's worth it. Because it matters. I mean, all throughout the book of 1 Timothy, Paul is battling this issue where Timothy feels like it's not worth it. I just need to quit. Anybody here ever feel like you just need to quit? Anybody feel like, I just don't need to go to church anymore? I don't need to read my Bible anymore? I don't. It's just not working. It's just not worth it. And all throughout it, Paul's saying, it is worth it. If you would just listen, just stay focused, just, just let the Lord deal with you, you'll find out that it's for all eternity and that it is worth it. And that's one of the reasons you really need the gathered church to come around you in those times when you're discouraged and depressed and despairing as Satan never quits. He's like a, a lion always moving to and fro, seeing who he can devour. He's never going to let up on you. And if you're out there all by yourself, you're going to become so discouraged and so despondent, you are going to just say it doesn't really matter. But when you're with your gathered church and elders who take care of you and people who love you, just like Paul is with Timothy, you say, look, this is important. This is the reason we labor and strive. There's a purpose to our work. And this side of heaven, it may not always be really clear what benefit it is, but we know this. On the other side of death, when we get to heaven, we're going to see that there was a purpose in all of it, and none of it was wasted. Because we put our hope in the living God, who's the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. What does that mean? That's a really... Now, for some of you, you look at that and go, I don't know, it's okay with me. Others of you are going, wait, wait a minute. How, how can he be the Savior of all people, and especially those who believe? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it does. When God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, there was no sin There's no death, but they sinned, and all of us since have, and the wages of sin is death, and upon the fall of humanity and upon our sin, the curse of of sin was placed upon this earth. Do you realize that within one generation of perfection, which was Adam and Eve, when sin came into the world within one generation, their own children committed the first murder. It didn't take long, did it? And so when we look at the idea that within the world today, sin has has engulfed it, and it's cursed by that. I often do funerals, as I said, for people who don't have a pastor, and I I work with them, and it's another sermon for another day. But it doesn't matter who you are. When you walk in that funeral home for the first time, and you see your loved one laying there, a corpse in a coffin, every molecule of your being, listen to me, every molecule of your being 
really does scream, this isn't right. My mother, my father, why did they have to die? My spouse, my friend, my sister, my child. Something's not right about this. And that's true. Death is a curse. It's not right. And that's why Jesus came. For those of us who are redeemed, he removed that curse of death. But that's why we feel so, so, so hopeless and helpless and like inside we go, no, why does my mother have to die? Why does my sister, why does my, my spouse, my child? I mean, we may say, yes, they lived a long life and now they're 90 years old or 100 or some of you are here are 90 thinking that's not old enough, but you know what I mean. And they say, they may think that. But yet at the same time, we go, even though they're that old, we don't have, why do they have to leave? There's something in us that makes it abundantly clear. This isn't right. This isn't correct. Because the wages of sin are death. And so when we, we look at the world in total here and we see the, the curse of sin upon the world, here's the reality. If it weren't for what we know as common grace, this world would be uninhabitable. Now, I only have a few minutes left. And one of the struggles when you preach through a book of the Bible is you come upon verses like this that really necessitate a lot of explanation and theological approach to fully enjoy the glorious depth of it. But here's the reality. Let me try to put it to you this way. I don't know about you, but, you know, I've been to Branson a lot, and the duck boats, and uh, ever since that news first hit, my heart's been really heavy and crushed because we all can place ourselves there, Right? It's just—it's the ultimate out for just an afternoon, and who would have thought? I mean, it, that's why it's so, it seems so completely and totally random and hopeless. And then when you, you know, especially if you watch the, the interview with the wonderful Christian mother who lost her three children and her husband and her in-laws and, you know, seven or eight of her family members, and she still has her faith in Jesus and still asks for prayer. And you, she lost her one-year-old daughter. She lost her five-year-old son and her seven-year-old son who was autistic. And her husband and her mother-in-law and her father-in-law and her uncle and her sister-in-law. You look at that and, you know, she has said, you know, I, I believe God saved me for a reason. I don't know what it is. And social media being the way it is, uh, people can say anything, and they have, and they do. And several folks have responded, well, you know, if God saved you, then why didn't he save all the others and all those questions, right? Paul says here, God, who is the Savior of all people, Satan is the prince and the power of this air. Because we've all sinned, the curse of sin have come on this world. This world has fallen and broken. Now, let me tell you something. You listen to me carefully. When we get to heaven, 
There's not going to be any more duck boat tragedies, all right? There's not going to be any more cemeteries. Nobody's going to follow a hearse out to the cemetery. You're never going to stand around and say the final words. You're never going to lower that body into the coffin. That's never going to happen in heaven, ever. It's going to be over and for all eternity. So this little vapor, this little fog of a life we have right now, it is a place that is cursed by sin. I, I, I really mean this. God's common grace is that every day across the globe there aren't countless murders and tragedies and accidents all the time. Common grace is what keeps the world as it is. If it weren't for God's common grace holding back evil, in a sense, every duck boat would capsize. If it weren't for common's great, God's common grace holding back evil, in a sense, when a duck boat did capsize, nobody would jump in and help anybody. Does that make sense? It is God's common grace that saves the whole world in, in that sense of keeps the world from completely coming apart at the seams. If God would remove his common grace from the earth for just one day, literally, we would probably destroy ourselves. So don't ever misunderstand the common grace with specific saving grace because Paul makes a differentiation here. He says that God who is the Savior of all people, but especially those who believe, those who believe he's the Savior of them for all eternity, not just here on this earth. And when we think about things like the, the, the accident with the duck boat or anything else, a tornado, uh, a car wreck, um, a child who gets some sort of terminal disease, all of those things bring all kinds of questions to our mind. And frankly, those of us who are followers of Jesus, we have to say, like the Apostle Paul, I see through a glass dimly, just like that young mother did when she gave that interview from the hospital and someone said, why did this happen? She said, I don't know yet. And I may never know until I get... And that's a wonderfully true answer. We don't know, but we do know that doesn't mean that God's not in control and that he doesn't love us and that he hasn't forgotten us and forsaken us. And when you compare those things to the pointless things that people were fussing about in Ephesus, Paul is saying, spend your time on things that matter because there's lots of issues in people's lives that matter and they need answers and we have the answer and God is the answer. And so don't focus and fuss and quarrel over things that don't matter. Spend your life, spend your energy on those things that are eternal and know that the goodness in this world that does exist, and it's not perfect, it's broken, but the goodness that does exist, that keeps things as good as they are, that is the gift of God. For if he would remove his, his common grace, it would all be over. But there's something even greater than common grace. There's specific grace that even if death does come, it doesn't destroy us. It's not the end. It is the, it is the pathway to eternal life and joy forever for all eternity. And that's what Paul's talking about. And that's the message we have. And that's what Satan wants us to get off track with. 